Did you know that kinky wellness is integral to your self-development? Hi, my name is Dana Shrigal. I'm a kinky wellness coach and owner of The Partition, home of kinky wellness. Each Monday, I bring on a guest to discuss why kinky sexual wellness deserves a seat in the wellness conversation. You can catch my solo shows on Wednesdays, but let's jump into it. Hey, and welcome back. Today, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Today is my birthday, and I have some announcements to make. Moving forward, every Monday, I'll be inviting a special guest to talk about kinky sexual wellness and why it deserves a bigger place in the wellness conversation. But don't worry, Katrina's with us for another couple of episodes. But this week, we will be celebrating my birthday with Megan Millington. Coincidentally, it was her birthday when we first brought her on the show, so I think it's only fitting that she's on the show for my birthday. So without skipping a beat, let's jump right into it. Hey, and welcome back. Today, we're joined by Megan Millington to discuss the book Sex at Dawn, The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality by Christopher Ryan and Casilda Jetha. So welcome back to the show, Megan. I'm so excited to be doing this book review with you. Thank you. Happy to be here, too. Yes. So this book, I would say to me, was like the epitome of sexual, like, sorry, unveiling sexual sabotage, because I can tell you right from chapter one with the origins of the species, I was definitely taught more about chimps. And so this book definitely challenges where evolutionary, where we would come from. And I would say that all I know is really like chimps and apes growing up in school. Yes, absolutely. For sure. Um, I think for me, um, the, the broad band of the uh, the book itself and looking at different aspects of research um, that it really helped to sort of unveil because I didn't really know about the bonobos either. And when I started to look at these cross sections of different apes, it kind of gave me this new perspective on, oh, like look at these different primates that we are so uh, closely related to that have different structures in how they operate in relationships. And so it made me sort of reflect back on what structure I'm in. Uh, So I really did enjoy that as well, where I started to learn these different, um, these primates and how they would operate in collective community. Um, Well, I took a, sorry, go ahead. Well, this quote's actually taken from another book of artificial intimacy, but it was do not cherry pick examples of how other species behave in order to claim that similar behavior in humans and humans is somewhere more natural. And I do feel like we do that. Like we, I feel like I've heard a lot like, oh, humans are more aggressive because we come from apes or we co- or chimps, sorry. And they are kind of aggressive. And it's like, I do like mm-hmm. in the book, it challenges, can we love as much as we hate or with rage? Like there's all these other feelings. And I do think that at heart, humans are not angry. I believe that we can become angry for sure, but I don't believe that we're born angry. Yes, absolutely. And I also really loved um, this Flintstone as, Flintstoneization, I believe mm-hmm. they were talking about that, where there's this, um, the people who are studying around human sexuality, like Darwin, for an example, who has been known for great, wonderful things. Absolutely. I don't want to like denote um, his credentials and what he's offered for us in our evolution and our, our research and science, but that it doesn't mean that every avenue um, is complete. And there is this Flintstoneization where there's what people experience in their community and then they place upon different um, primates or different historical parts of like assumption about how we operate. 
And I feel like it's sort of touching on the same thing that that you're speaking of around this assumption of how we behave based on what we're seeing in animals. And part of it is a bit of a projection. And what, what uh, we do know is that at the time of a lot of this research that has been written by Darwin and other uh, thought leaders and philosophers, anthropologists, is that there was a lot of sexual repression there. There was two options of how to live in a female body. It's like either a female body is to be hidden and not seen, um, or it's exclusively to be used as um, a way of sexual gratification for men. And it's like that in itself, when you kind of like think about that, it's like, okay, well, that was what the story was in that time frame, And this is what these people are experiencing. And then they're viewing primates and then projecting onto whatever they're experiencing from an internal place. So Yes, the bi- the it's un- the unconscious bias. I think is really what it is, and I, I do think that it plays out. But even with the book, they say things like with Napoleon Kagon, the Wainomo, the fierce people. Like he wrote that book about how they were so aggressive, but really he intentionally was making these people aggressive towards each other, and he was mm-hmm. intentionally taking their culture and and doing things that upset them. And then wrote a book about it, which I, I'm shocked and surprised, but it is still sold to millions of university students. But he intentionally, that's intentionally wrong information that's going out there. And people are studying that as if, oh, okay, humans have aggressive sex because look at this book that this person made. But it's it's wrong. Like, it's actually wrong information. Just, I, yeah, in general. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And I think that um, why I I really enjoyed this book was that it was really questioning a lot of our social narratives around what uh, monogamy, around uh, nuclear family, these different kinds of experiences. Meanwhile, at the same time, simultaneously, we have... uh, we have sayings that are woven into our culture even today around it takes a village to raise a family. And it's like, we have these different uh, connotations around community and um, to base our our behavioral development um, and sexual development from uh, these places, you know, you really wanna kind of take a look at where this information is coming from. And when you see like, oh, it takes a village, like I some of the books, it said that in some cultures, they encourage young people to like sleep together and sleep around. And here it's weird. It's like I we have such a weird look at it. We're like, oh, take back your sexual power. You can do whatever you want. But then you're kind of shunned for it. But then at the same Mm -hmm. time, there's no there's no help. I don't know. Like they'll say the mechanics of sex, but not the mental aspects of what sex can do to you, the physical, the emotional. They just stay mm-hmm. on the mechanics of it. And I find that that's damaging that way of teaching. Yeah. yeah. And I, to me, it actually even shows how much is missing from the data as well. Right. It's like to to say that that is just the fundamental operational element of, of sex and connection is showing that there's it's coming from a limited view of what sex is and then this is what's being written about um yeah it's 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 really um yeah that's what I think I would say about that yeah and because when you compare it back to the Bonobo apes they I found it interesting that out of all the primates that they were the only ones that faced each other while having sex and eye gazing Mm -hmm. and 
when you look at how similar they are and they say like, oh, if we if we had sex the way gorillas did or chimps are, then we would be different sizes. Like men would be something like eight times bigger than us because they would have to fight for us. And I do like how with the bonbos, like we're exactly the same in proportion to each other. So there is all this when you're just looking at them, all this data right there that suggests like we should definitely go into this, but they just cancel it. And Jane Goodall, I don't same thing with Darlene. I don't want to diminish the work that she's done. But when I saw how how they were trying to research them and the banana boxes and how they were getting increasingly more territorial because they were being fed and they were still being studied. I don't think that's that's mentioned that I don't think it's mentioned as much that the interference of humans really did change their behavior as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Again, I think that in order to really dissect information that we're learning about around sexuality based on looking at primates, we have to look at the people who are researching and the culture that they live in, the narrative that they live in. Because as a human species, we're very complex in the sense that we have a lot of social structures that impact and intersect how we operate in our world, including, um, you know, language, we have left and right brain, um, how we interact, uh, growing up social cues, um, you know, brain development in terms of family dynamics, so how we can operate on an emotional level, and all of that is like, impacting how we input information, mm -hmm. and also, um, the the type of information that's coming out so i i it's interesting that those bits of information are omitted or not talked about enough because it shows to me it's coming from an uh a biased place it's like yeah. i need to be able to show this bit of information in order to to prove the result which i guess is part of the science process as well but the other thing that i really love about sex at dawn um is that a lot of other anthropologists and scientists have cross-examined about uh, around this book and have looked through and tried to pick things apart and even as they were picking things apart to try to use the same evidence to show otherwise the one main thing that I found um, was from two people but one of them I remember from Emily Nagowski which was talking about how the book um, uh, the people who wrote uh, Sex at Dawn were proving that there was a uh, a bias that was kind of projected onto what the information was to be able to culminate this um, uh, narrative around human sexuality. And Emily Nagowski and someone else, I can't remember his name, he, they were basically saying that, that these authors were doing the same thing, where they had an idea that we were actually different than what the, the narrative is. And they're they're searching for that information as well. And I thought it was an interesting argument because it's like, okay, so no matter what side you're on, we can agree that the information is inaccurate and there's something missing. And yeah. so, and how we know there's something missing is because ultimately, fundamentally, we're not satisfied with the narratives that are there. And we notice that there's uh, social problems, uh, physical issues, uh, relationship issues that are just not aligning. Well, relationship issues about not aligning is definitely the is the question. If monogamy is natural, humans shouldn't have to be threatened to death to follow it. I thought that was a very powerful statement because I do believe that's true. Uh, you shouldn't have to threaten death on any level if that's if that's how we're supposed to be hardwired. Mm -mm, you shouldn't have to make a rule about it. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that is a very powerful statement. That is a super powerful statement. It's like, you know, where it just feels like so much control, you know, like so much control. I do believe that they have harnessed how to hold on to our sexual energy to control people in a way. And it might sound, I don't know how this sounds, but throughout learning about sex, not one time, again, emotional, mental, I think that it's intentional that those are being left out of the conversation when it comes to sex education in the sense of what it can do for you. And it's not for your partners, but how you can feel about yourself. If you're not connected to your sexual self, I don't believe that you can have a high level of self-esteem. I don't think it it can work. You could fake it, you can pretend, but deep down inside, if you're not linked there wholeheartedly, you're going to feel it. It's going to feel empty. And what you said, something's missing. Like, I do think that that is that spark that's not miss that's not connected. Yes, absolutely. For sure. Like, I mean, our sexuality, I talk to many people and it's funny. Um, I even remember this at a period of time, I would consider my sexuality as something separate, but your sexuality is with you every now and every now moment. And our sexuality in itself has been co-opted to have this view of what it looks like and what it is that is sort of evil, dirty, like need to kind of push away perhaps. And so that makes us sort of fragmented away from who we are. But um, I kind of look at it like it's, you know, imagine that it was your feet and then you just like kind of cut off your feet and like put it away. It's like, you wouldn't be able to walk. Like you just, you wouldn't be able to function in the same way that you would if you just, uh, you know, uh, allowed it to be a part of, of your, yourself and who you are, but because it is this energy, it's this like primordial force. It's this like, yes, we have a location physically, but there's more to it. it it's can, it's an intelligent center that's connected uh, on an energetic, emotional, physical, and even spiritual level that we can somehow find ways to sort of uh, remove ourselves from it. But how we do that is we separate from our body. We don't pay attention to our sensations. We're not, we're not paying attention to our, um, uh, our senses, like our sense of hearing, our sense of smell, our sense of touch. Uh, which then, you know, leads us into overconsumption or numbing because ultimately the body will always remember where we've left off. So it's, it's truly a sense of, you know, feeling unworthy because who I am, fun the message is who I am fundamentally is not okay. It's not worthy. It's not lovable. So therefore I cannot be whole because if that's who I am fundamentally, then I need to remove myself from who I am. So we're just walking around with a sense of unworthiness. All right. You're totally right. But you said something that I want to add on to um, with a, it's your senses. One of those things is I do feel that intimacy is too focused on our talk. It's too much on what we say to each other. And there is a lot of emphasis, but I, I'm going to, I just read uh, mating in captivity. I'm going to be doing actually next week, something on that, but I do want to touch on it because the senses, if you're talking too much, especially when it comes to males, they, they show affection and eroticism through touch, through actions, through things. So when our whole society is based on like what we say to each other, some people cannot articulate through just words like, but you can mm -hmm. through your body, through your sound is a big one being able to like orgasm and just be loud and not worried. Um, mm -hmm. That's really important. So it's less, it's more about being connected to your body, allowing your body to make those noises, those movements, and not so much what is coming out of your mouth verbally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's actually not only 
incredibly helpful to lean into your present moment experience when you're sounding or uh, when you're moving or um, paying attention to the taste inside of your mouth or what you're looking at, this type of thing. But it also really helps to move stuck energy. So it really helps us to move away from all of this guck that has really been locked into our sexuality. Um, sound is a huge mover of energy. Uh, breath really helps to focus in on what it is that you're experiencing and actually move it through the body. So it's it's not only important to help heal what we have stored inside of our som soma, inside of our body, inside of our nervous system, um, but it is also a sense of presence. And we're we're taught to really fear these um, these natural parts of who we are, these instinctual present now. Like in order to be present, you need to be able to be able to be aware of your your smell, your hearing, your taste, your nose, like everything around you. And that's where you're going to have the best orgasmic experiences. That's where you're going to be the most present. And when you're the most present, you're the most attuned to your instincts and your ability to, to discern very clearly. And I can't help but think a lot about our consumerism culture, like how we have these certain scents that we use and perfumes and these different distraction pieces that are kind of pulling and distorting our senses from being in, in, inside of ourselves. Um, you know, even our food products, some things that are, you know, less healthy, less ideal. And I also do want to make a note that eating unhealthy sometimes isn't actually a choice. Like there, we do have, um, wage disparity, class disparity. And, um, I'd like to really acknowledge that as well, not to shame. Uh, no, no, no. And even to your yeah. point, the actual labels, I shared something on my Instagram actually the other day, the labels. So non-GMO, you could have that non-GMO label on there, but it doesn't actually take out the preservatives that they put into the bag or the box or the produce that you actually have. It doesn't eliminate it. You have to do, I think it's the USAD regardless it it's you can't even trust the labels so yeah it's not even our fault so, on that level either yes exactly and i can't help but think of these different places that like you know for an example when when i i remember what time when i would eat candy or i would have something like um just like kind of garbage food you know like snacky food when i was younger and just kind of left unmonitored and eating these things if i ate um you know, just some traditional grapes or an apple or something like that, it would be boring. My taste buds were so escalated to something else that was synthesized and synthetic or not real that it's like coming back into the, to the truth and the root of it. It's like, I couldn't even appreciate it. So our, our senses are sort of being co-opted into these different plugs that we lose ourselves into it. And it can actually even be present itself as a bit of a challenge. And you almost have to, and I actually even notice it in my clients where I have to buy them into the experience of what they'll gain and get by retraining their senses and their focus, by reminding them what it is that they really want, because where they feel the most um, bought in is the fact that they feel so lost and sick and ill, right? And then it's just like, okay, well, well, we need to kind of retrain that focus and come back into the senses. Wow. Yeah. That was a lot of information that I just learned there too, mm -hmm. but it's true because I do relate to the fact of when I kind of moved away into eating healthier, I didn't like anything. I was just like, this sucks. And it really is trying to say like, you ate a lot of sugar. Everything has sugar in it. Everything has a crazy amounts of salt in it. And the foods that we have 
e are affecting how we have sex and our moods about sex and just our moods in general, because sex is so related to moods at times. It's like for women, I would say obviously more than men, but in the book, yeah, it definitely says that like women are affected by all sorts of things when it comes to their sexual sexuality and what they can do. And they're affected by the politics and the weather and the education and what's on the to-do list and all these things, but men don't have, you know, as many tabs open, but I learned some things about erotic plasticity um, in this book, which I thought was interesting about how men have almost like a developmental window for their sexuality and women are fluid all through their years, really, but they lie Mm -hmm. about it, which I thought was interesting. Yes. Very interesting. And, um, I don't, I actually am not recalling that, that particular moment in that book talking about the plasticity. Can you talk a little bit about that a little bit more? So I remember. Yes. So, um, they did a test where straight heterosexual women, um, and heterosexual men were watching different images on the TV. So it was gay couple, lesbian couple, but even animals as well. And so they had it set up where when a man was turned on, he would most likely say I'm turned on. And if he said I'm turned off, then the computer would see Mm, that he wasn't actually turned on so it was lining up correctly but with women they would be saying i'm not turned on i'm not turned on but inside the same receptors are going off but they were lying about it because the fear of like whatever it is judgment this and that and women i think that women do lie a lot about when they're turned on a lot i don't know if they notice it and i think Mm -hmm. it has to do with the fact they're not connected to their bodies yeah absolutely um well yeah and this really stems back from when we moved into agriculture, where there was this movement towards ownership and having one main figure to pair the children, to pass on the wealth, to, you know, kind of accumulate these different kinds of resources and things. Um, women started to lose their role and their function by the view of the narrative of the public. Um, and so it was important to, um, to basically, um, there, they had, women had two options, essentially. It was like, okay, well, you were either a prostitute, um, where, you know, you didn't necessarily have, you know, certain wealth to resources, you know, things of that nature, or you were more of that, uh, good girl, you know, wife, you know, bear children, you know, do these things. And the man would have an opportunity to, you know, deal with whatever he needed to deal with, you know, maybe he had, he needed to have sex and, and to, um, you know, uh, quench his thirst, if you will, I guess, to his sexual desire. And, but women, it, it a lot of their economic status and safety was really put into whether you were in one category or another. And some of them, you know, you didn't really have choices around that either. And so this, this uh, lying about what women feel inside of their body really stems from uh, hundreds of years, if not thousands of this idea of if I don't conform to this narrative, I literally will die. I will not have food and resources. Um, you know, disease was more predominant then. Um, there's a lot more factors at play. Like there's not as as much free healthcare, things of this nature. Um, so it, it really stems from that moment in time and how this has progressed. The other thing um, that I notice in my work even is that uh, some women, it, like their bodies will respond, but they won't even acknowledge it because in order to shut down this primordial force, because pleasure is, is, is a birthright to everyone. Everyone has access to it. 
But when you get the message that it's not okay to feel that, you, you there's a physiological response that will happen where there's tension in the pelvic floor and a shutting down from feeling your lower body. So you actually won't even register feeling it. And okay. a lot of these women will experience things like vulvodynia or um, tension or like back aches, back hernias, like, you know, issues where there's pelvic floor issues because there's so much tensing because the, the brain and the mind is saying it is dangerous to feel anything down there. So we're just going to like get really uncomfortable and cross our legs and like, you know, curl up in a ball kind of like to stop this movement of energy. Wow. Yeah. I think that's. That's so sad. I um I do think that there's power in teaching the female orgasm. I do believe that we need to teach that because we do I don't want people to think that what you said like it's not we have a birthright to it. It's not something that pleasure is given to us by some outside source. And I do think there is a lot of people out there that maybe they're unaware of it but they've subconsciously thinking, oh, someone else has to give me this type of pleasure. I have to find this outside. I cannot give this to myself, which is it's it's sad, but it's just how it is. Like some people we have to really it's hard to know what you don't know. Yes, yes, totally. And I actually um, that um, research that you're talking about there where they were where women were noticed that were actually getting more turned on by things, but weren't acknowledging it. I like to cross that work with um, some of Emily Nagoski's work again, where there's this there's this idea and narrative that women are less turned on, they don't get um, sexually aroused as quickly um, compared to men, but there's like a physiological difference that happens where men's genitals are more on the exterior. So their penis is like outside of their body, exactly where a woman's clitoris is, but it's more, it's protruded and external. And there's a lot more rubbing sensation from diapers or from, you know, crawling on furniture or whatever that would create tingling sensation of this nature. And when young boys are looking around their environment and they feel that they're programming their world as erotic, they're programming their world as uh that will have this like sense of like it's okay to have erection or this is sexual because their penis will also be erected different times too but we also know that uh when a penis is erect it doesn't actually mean that um that they're uh sexually ready to have sex it's just that um or that it's even sexually relevant it's just that um they're maybe expressing an emotion or that the erection is moving because of different blood pressure or different hormones and things of that nature but our society views it as oh i have erection that means that i i want that and so women um because their vulva is uh you know more tucked away if you will Though I remember experiencing uh, pleasure and tingling and different types of sensation at a very young age, but a lot of women don't experience it as readily because there's not such a, a pronounced experience of that. That yeah, that then, sense. yeah, that then there's this like um, this this split of um, uh, the allowance of sexually relevant stimuli. And so it's, it's like our cultural narrative and how we operate. We're told that we're not able to be as um, erotically turned on or sexually relevant. But in my experience, as I've grown in this industry and it's been my passion and purpose, women are very sexually creative. 
incredibly sexually creative and sensual creatures like but we don't really have a lot of role models or spaces to really explore that and to see other women celebrating their sexuality or enjoying themselves in this way more than I've seen from men yes and I think with women to add to that like it's the the role models that we do have only have this very narrow limited viewpoint of what eroticism can be or what pleasure or sexuality can be but like things like bringing it back to Brass Vixen, where we met the chair dances, the pole classes, the floor work, like getting on the ground. Like there's all these things that are erotic and sensual and sexual that they're not necessarily like this. I don't want to use the word vulgar, but it's can be done in a way like, no, it is what it is. Like there's different versions of it, but we only see one version of it, which is unfortunate. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, and there's juice, like, I think what I'm hearing you say is like, there's juice in every moment, you yeah. know, and it's, and I think that women can really actually tap into that a little bit more. What I'm, what I'm noticing, um, than men can, cause men have also been, uh, very much, uh, programmed to just be very penis centric, um, and, you know, P and B or, you know, if they're heterosexual, um, in heterosexual relationship. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's a unique, um, reflection when I read this work and see that women are actually experiencing more arousal, but not naming it, but then also how we grow up, where our genitals are located and the programming that we have. It's like, if, if I were to live in this world and like completely like wipe it clean and I got the messaging that men got and men got the messaging that I got, I'd probably be like, you know, um, more quickly aroused or have, you know, I would have that, what men are experiencing more of, you know? And so it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, I really love to think about that when, when women are worried about their responsive sexual arousal. Well, yeah. And to your point about men in the sexual everywhere they go, like they mentioned that sexual frustration is a real deal because of the, everything that's being marketed to them, but then they're getting told, oh, you can't have sex or there's not like um, you can't have sex. Or you can't have sex the way you want, which I find that that is true. Like, I do think that I do think that that is. But now knowing that women are also turned on by a lot of things, I do think that everyone is just sexually frustrated and we can talk yes. about men being sexually frustrated. But sexual frustration, sexual needs is on the Maslow's law of heart needs of hierarchy. Right. And so when you take that away, I do believe we have this sexual starvation that's going on out here in the West, but we haven't been able to name it kind of what you said, because the information is just not there. And so we're not quite sure what it is, but we can feel it internally. And I think it's across the board on this one. Yes, absolutely. Actually, I, have um I think I wrote down a quote here around something that was really kind of yeah so I think it was like um replicates the mechanics of age defining uh steam engine flow of erotic energy creates increasing pressure put to work through controlled bursts of creativity through he was wrong a lot about what it appears yeah it was talking about um something around in the book uh, that was talking a lot about our sexuality is like this pressure the steam engine um, uh, moving and operating this, this, um, you know, steam engine train, if you will. And there's this pressure of it to be, but instead of it moving towards the way that it needs to be moved, it's almost like it's ch choosing to funnel this already fluid energy through us in, in a pressurized way in a particular, in a particular mechanism, which is our social constructs and these ideas and these lenses. So it's like, 
it already is this momentum of energy. So absolutely, I feel like we see the sexual frustration and everything. And I actually even think when you were talking about um, looking at apes and then saying that, that we're fundamentally violent in these different things, it's like, I feel that that's a reflection of internal pressurized, not being able to be your full self mm. that you're feeling rage. And then you're like, see, there's rage. I I'm now checking that off as something that is real. And again, yes. it's this, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a very good point. Um, another part of the book that I like so much is embodies in motion. They're the popularity of gangbangs and sperm co- competition links. And mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting because I do, when we go into the science or just the biology of sperm competition, I did not realize how much goes down there about sperm and and killing off sperm and and like what's in a sperm. Like if a man ejaculates in a woman and then another man comes to ejaculate inside of a woman, like their dicks are designed to vacuum that out. And Mm -hmm. it's almost like this this whole war zone of territory kind of goes down there. And so I want to bring this attention because I do think that women should know this like sperm competition is a thing that we were kind of designed to do I guess mm-hmm. absolutely for sure um I love that bit of research I also remember um uh understanding something that the egg itself or the will actually choose what sperm it is as well I think that there's there's an aspect of that as well which is along the same lines as I don't know how they figured that out to be honest but it's along the same lines as that too where it's like, you'll see a bunch of these sperms kind of like kind of coming in, but then the egg will allow one of them in. So there's this sort of um, intelligence of system that's trying to figure out what will best suit. And to me, it makes complete sense because the the female is bearing the most um, strain or risk by carrying another infant, like she's about to go on to this, go through this experience that will, you know, really test her, her minerals, her body intelligence, her ability to birth this baby. And so there's a lot of risk involved. So it makes sense that there's this competition that needs to happen for it to be this perfect um, connection. And actually, I I have to look into this research. I've heard a lot about it and have read read about it, um, but I don't remember where these specific stats are. But birth control has really affected the ability of women to be able to smell out. No, uh, I know exactly partners. what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So and it was the sweater mm-hmm. test. Is that what you're talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. I just got yeah. excited. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, and I, I mean, a birth control is great. It had like, obviously it served a huge purpose. It really helped us actually get more of a voice and move our, move our sexuality out of it, just being procreation based um, and moving it into more of a, of a choice. So like, I absolutely love that. And we can make adaptations. And now that there's more research and funding and learning about female bodies and going back to our traditions and our roots, um, where we learn about our menstrual cycle, that we now have options to not use birth control in that way. And what they're noticing is that women who are on birth control, um, are mating with people or connected people. Then when they go off birth control, they're realizing that they're just not as compatible. And we have this ability again, through our senses, our senses being clear and clean, that we can smell in other partners, women in particular, because we actually have a a larger part of that capacity inside of our brain to interpret through scent 
uh, whether our, our genes or our DNA is going to be a match for optimal health for you to be able to, to bear the child and to birth the child. And that's why it's it's actually really disruptive for men to wear scented colognes and perfumes as well, because they're disrupting the ability to, to scent that connection on a biological level. Yes, it's funny you bring this up because I just actually researched that as well, because I'm doing um to your point, women on birth control are actually falling or going towards men with more feminine features. And then when they come off birth control, they also look at their partners and are looking at them and they don't have that traditional like masculine, like the star drawing line and stuff like that. And then they don't look at their partner the same with those uh, beyond the the scent, but also just visual looking at them saying like, you look different. I'm not attracted to you anymore. And when you correlate that to the rate of divorces in this, uh, out here in the West, I think it's ridiculous that we're not questioning this. And I, I do agree. Uh, the pill gave women a chance to be financially independent and make longer term goals and things like that. But it's one of those things, like, I do agree that when you bring up the pill, people get very hush hush. Like you're not allowed to question it or challenge it. And I'm doing a podcast basically to say that women, you're not even pregnant all the time. So mm -hmm. yeah, this is a great topic that I think women should and look at the the what's going on the pill affects so much inside as well it's not very mm -hmm. good for you if you actually yeah. look at it so yes you might not get pregnant but the the risks just look into it do the risks outweigh the benefit at that point yes and look at alternative options for sure mm -hmm. um I think that we're not told as much about what these options are. We're not, we're not really taught about it. We don't have role models of it. And we still don't really have this in our, in our school and system very much. It's just like very hyper medicated, um, you know, following, take, like, take this thing, push this button, have this thing. We do live in this culture right now. Um, but my problem yeah. is that when you're 13 and you're on this and then you're on it for like 20 years before you decide to come off of it it's that that's who i'm worried for the 13 year old to the 33 year old to the like who's about to go yes. on have a baby but those long-term effects of being on that for 20 years your body can't register like it's just coming and showing that your body can't just oh you're off the pill now you can get pregnant no it's not that's it's starting to see that that's not the case that's not actually happening yes yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah. Because your hormones need to actually come back into balance again. Um, for a period of time, I, I got very curious because I was on birth control for quite a bit of time. I think like, oh, maybe like 10 years, nine years or something like that. And something just felt off. I didn't feel right, but I could never really pinpoint it. And I just started to kind of look into my health. I started eating well, these different kinds of things. I got off birth control. And it took me about, I think, three to four months to start to feel like I could menstruate regularly like there was kind of you know that kind of thing but I also noticed a strong sense of clarity and I could feel my world mm. more and I thought that that was very distinct for me um that uh really started to pique my interest on you know what you know what is like deemed healthy for me and what is it really doing for me? Because I'm having this lived experience of being able to focus more I'm I'm able to smell more 
Um, you know, I'm feeling more in my sex, you know, like I'm feeling more connected to my flow and my cycle. I also think that a lot of it, um, we're, we're taught to fear our flow. We're, we're, we're taught to fear when we menstruate as well. So it's like, okay, well, if I take this pill, it'll just lessen those things. But actually if you're struggling with menstruation or there's pain, it's because there is a, there's an issue with how you're building your blood, what type of minerals you have, the stress factors that you're experiencing. Like we're not taught about, you know, what we're needed to, to be able to build up into our uterine lining to be able to shed. Right. And because we just don't have that type of culture anymore talking about this. Well, pain, like that's the thing too. I constantly tell people, you're not supposed to have a painful painful period that's just that's like I feel like that's we've convinced each other that that's normal and it's yes. not normal to have a painful period even though it is normal like it is the, the narrative right now but it shouldn't be that way because I remember even I went in and it was I didn't want to be on birth control and they said you know like this and that but then I went to some other doctor and he said oh it's because you don't get enough what you're saying you don't get enough water from this time to this time you're dehydrated and so something's not getting the hydration it needs from you mm -hmm. and I I've noticed that even with my periods now that I stopped eating kind of processed foods I get no pain at all like mm -hmm. zero and I really want to I'm not saying it's the processed foods specifically, but there was definitely something in there that was not yeah. sitting right with me when I was getting my period. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I started to learn, um, how to eat during my follicular phase and I didn't, I didn't overcomplicate it. It was just like, I, I followed a woman who was a nutritionist and she had a lot of issues with menstruation. And so that became her work and her art and her, her gift to the world. And I really resonated with her, with her work. And it's, we have this endocrine system and there's a limit to, um, to the capacity of it. She had this really beautiful model where you imagine this, um, three-legged stool and the, the seat part is your endocrine system. And then you have your, um, your sex hormones, uh, your cortisol. And then there was something else as well, which I'm not quite remembering in this moment, but when you have your stress, cortisol, if you have a lot of cortisol in your body through food or thought or your environment, that's going to take up the predominant of your endocrine system, which is going to alter your sex hormones and the way that your hormones are operating. And if your hormones are not operating in the appropriate way, you're not going to build up the right uterine lining. Uh, you're, you're going to have different menstruation flow. And so it's actually a really key indicator of how it's actually a beautiful gift to be menstruating because it will show you how your internal workings are operating and what you need to do. But we just don't actually aren't given the right tools and information in order to be able to correct that and understand what that is. Wow. Yeah. I, it's important. I, it, it, all of this is important. Sex and sex related reproduction, all of it, when it comes down to the insides and out, I do think it's important. But some other things about the book that I actually like mm -hmm. detouring back to the book is that mm -hmm. humans react better to cooperation and, and alliances. Mm -hmm. And the, I never believed in this, but that whole lie that we only live till 40, I don't think I ever believed in that. Um, because they even say that facts, people live between 66 and 91 with higher levels of overall health and mobility. And I do think that because they were walking more, we weren't sitting in such an unnatural position, but there was a lot about humans that I think that we have been scared into. Oh, your back is starting to hurt. Don't worry. We were supposed to die at 40. Pain is part of life. I don't believe this whole thing that pain outside pain is part of life. If you want to invite it in, 
like like through BDSM and kink, one could argue you can use pain as pleasure. But the idea that we, oh, you're 40, now it's okay that your knees hurt, now it's okay that your back hurts. No, there's something wrong there too. Like we need that mobility all the way up until we die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that what you're talking about is doctors or um, medical professionals or scientists and research, they're, they're studying the symptoms of what our culture is experiencing in the moment and not really relating it to where we change because we do have societies that live today that are living well beyond into their 90s or 100s and they do have mobility and they are moving but when you look at the way that they live there's community there's tradition Mm -hmm. uh they believe in um nature they're connected to song or something there's something that binds the community in that way uh there's a wholeness and sense of their body there's a sense of spirituality in some way that they connect to um that roots them into into the world um And so this idea around like this mental construct, and I even see it in my family too. Like once I think like 30 is the, oh, like I'm feeling old and like, you know, oh, it's coming. And it's just like, I I never bought in that either. Um, I thought it was really bizarre, but it's because our, we're hyper-medicalized. Like we look at our body through a medical lens and it's a problem to be solved constantly. But the problems that are being, that need to be solved, in my opinion, are symptoms of how we have been taught and chosen how to live, how to connect sexually, how to build families, how to go to school, um, how to work. Like, and so, yeah, I think that it's, it's a combination of, of those two, two points. Well, even with the community and the songs and things like that, it's just, they ask like, is this traditional family dynamic of two parents and two children actually hurting us? Is it destroying our culture? It, because the model itself is not designed for how we are biological, like how we are originally structured, what the argument is, they're saying like how we live now, it's hurting us so much because it's just about this family, this house. We don't really care about our neighbors anymore. We don't care about anything else. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I also uh, love this this research in um, Sex at Dawn that's talking about this argument that there's this biological um, initiative that that men want to know who their biological children are like like there's this need to have it but actually we see it in our culture that that's completely not true and I even come from a family of that nature where um, I had a grandfather who was not biologically related to me and no distinct difference at all like I would consider him my grandfather a hundred percent he would consider me like like took me on as as a grandchild you know Mm -hmm. and we see that often where people are um adopting um or using um uh you know in vitro or something of this nature where it's not biological but there's so unique like connection so it's showing that that's that's fundamentally not true you know when when you look at the research where there's uh, more parents involved in in a child's life and that they're they're healthy and that they're doing well, it it shows that when we're looking at just the nuclear family as the only way of operating in the world, that there's another motive as why we're doing it. Like because if if it's showing that it it works and in some cases it's even better when there's more parents involved when there's when there's more resources for a child a growing child to go to uh, more 
um, opportunity for safety and development um, in case something had happened to support the mother or to support the mothers. Um, that there's a different kind of motive, which is also the cultural narrative. And, you know, I, and we, we do live in this idea that if it's a nuclear family and we're living in this one way with just two parents that um, we'll be able to maintain wealth or that if people aren't wealthy, that we can omit people from getting our, obtaining more of our wealth. Like we can keep it in the family. Like it's just mm -hmm. gonna stay here because there's this sense of money and greed is is the the end all be all yeah when you come from like when you're being raised in one of like out here in the west and when you say you don't have one of those parents and if we did have more caretakers that we all live together and things like that it, the child wouldn't feel so alone and neither were the parents mm -hmm. like this goes for the parents too they they need a break as well like it's 100%. not like one person can handle everything all the time like children are so like I don't have a child but like I've seen them they're crazy and I yeah again you do need a village but I don't it's we want it though that's the thing we want cooperation but we don't know how to ask for it we don't know how to verbalize like we need help almost too I think that mm -hmm. kind of goes together we're discouraged. We have this, you can do it on your own mentality. You don't have to ask. And when it comes to sex, as much as yes, we can pleasure ourselves. We do want to connect with someone else. So we do want that skin to skin contact with someone. We, it, it is something to be shared abundance and, and sex wasn't just for procreation. You know, at one point it was for like friendship, relieving stress, just being chill. So that's, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I mean, I, I would argue, you know, that um, older cultures, older civilizations as well. I mean, like just from my background and, and studying Tantra and using my sexuality um, in, in more ways than just for pleasure, but more for movement of energy through the body, that there absolutely is these transcendental experiences. It's like experiencing the universe through someone else like seeing the universe seeing god goddess like whatever you want to call it like through a divine being of someone else being in momentum being in flow through the body is such a beautiful state and i wonder that some of um these older cultures and civilizations where um sexual fluidity and connection was more predominant that they were probably connecting in these ways as well they found some type of value and sometimes when we talk about value, um, I think that we get tripped up and, 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 and this is a little bit more of an opinion. It's something that I kind of like, um, you know, think about in my own experience is that when we think about value, it's like, okay, well, what is it getting us in that moment? But sometimes whatever we experience, we get the value after. You know, like we go on this journey, we do this thing. It's kind of like, you know, I'm going to go for a run. And at the time you're just sort of like doing this thing. But then at the end of it, you're like, oh, I feel like elated. I have like blood flow in my body. I'm more focused, all these things. And, you know, in these other cultures and traditions where they maybe didn't have like as much technology distraction, again, uh, numbing the senses that connecting to sexual fluidity and having more of the community there's something that they're gaining in value that's giving them after that's that's helping them move forward in that way I also think that they knew how to play like I also think that they knew how to not break from that childhood like playfulness of curiosity of going down that line it's just when you break that off sex is where adults go to play that is your playground like you can do so many things through it and 
yeah, it's relearning that it's relearning that this can be something playful. This is just what we can do to have fun. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I, I really, um, this book was, was a real pivotal point for me because it gave me so much to reflect on, on what narrative that I was living in and what could be possible. But at the same time, it started to poke against the fears that were living inside of my body that I later then found out um, were really what was keeping me in this idea of, of nuclear family being the only option. And some of it was really fear of uh wealth and money like i had this deep imprinting that i that i really had to work on and i believe a lot of women walk around with this that i will not have enough resources or wealth um or um security or finances if i'm not with a male bodied person mm-hmm. like like it's it's really not even like you know um you know a, a person who exudes more masculine energy it's literally it has to be a male bodied person and i thought that was really interesting even though you know i'm i'm you know a, a go-getter. I love studying. I believe in myself, but there was still this idea inside of my body that really affected um, how I operate. And once I started to un- unwind that, I started to notice that I felt more pleasure, more eroticism, uh, not only for, for uh, male body people, but for women as well. And just opened up this um, flow of energy, which started to then again, touch on that fear of, okay, well, will I be alone? because I'm now not going to be seen as someone that I can be chosen. Like it was this weird experience in that way. And all of this is affecting our ability to flow and be playful, to Mm. create, to connect to our erotic energy and move and all of these things. And so I, this book really helped me to question and to lean in and get really curious about these structures that are here. And it's unfortunate because I still really see the grip hold in our culture. Like we still get the messaging for sure, you know, and we are still on that road of, of unwinding this and being role models and leaders. And so I love having this conversation around this for people to, to feel inspired to kind of read into this and question for themselves. Question a lot of things. Like I, one opinion for sure that changed throughout this court for journey with me is I originally, I know I made a podcast like right when I first started about pair bonding and it was all mm-hmm. about, uh, there's like, there's two sides to it. There's one side that's pair bonding where you have sex with someone. There's a chemical thing you get connected. Right. But then this was kind of suggesting this book was questioning if that's true, then why can women go out and have sex with multiple people in a village and it's carefree and it doesn't bother them. But I know with the pair bonding, I I saw the study of which that was done on. I read it. And so I really want to redo another one on pair bonding. I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Because I do believe mm-hmm. that there is chemicals that releases when you have sex. Like you do kind of get connected to yourself, the, the moment, you know, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when, when I hear that, uh, when I hear you talk about that, that what comes to me is the complexity of our socialization and how we and how we operate and and what resources are available what is really happening and going on like we're aware of um uh we're aware of our ability to um to be open and more free yet there are still indications of um it not feeling safe enough to be able to just be more like what I'm trying to say is like, 
I would say this fluidity of female enjoying multiple partners um, and um, allowing more of this tribe mentality around um, caretaking with um, a child or infant that like having multiple fathers, having uh, multiple tribes, people helping. There was a fundamental safety in that network in that way. Whereas right now you have to search out those communities. And even in those communities, we still have such a ingrained um, idea that it's it's risky. It's risky to be able to. So I think people are still really kind of moving into that pair bonding kind of um, experience because it just isn't safe enough to explore. There isn't enough representation of what that could look like. So people are still feeling like, you know, um, not financially uh, secure, stable enough to even explore that so much. I think when it comes out here in the West, finances come a lot down to our sex, like how we have sex, who we have sex with. I think finances dictate, it, it's not, I think it's it's there. Like, oh, I don't want to, I see a whole bunch of women go on and say like, oh, a man needs to have this, 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 and this, and they have to make this amount of money. As if that's going to make a difference of with if you sexually connect to that person, but we do it. It's I, it comes kind of back to the safety, like oh, if they have money, then I will be okay. I will be secure. But it's interesting because we have such a movement of women being so independent all the time that I have seen kind of on the flip side of this, they kind of get a little older and they're starting to say to themselves like, Oh, I kind of want that connection back with somebody. And we're, it's weird. Um, it's like a weird spot to be in. Yeah. What, what I have noticed, um, in, you know, some of my clients and some, some in, in the world that I'm in, 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 um, sexual coaching, sexual development is that what I'm noticing is this like kind of hybrid experience where people are coming together as, they're they're fundamentally understanding that there's something uh needing to be respected about your partner that you're with like you need to be a autonomous you need to be able to experience life like you know in this kind of way and then there's this negotiation as you develop and get later into your you know being together for like 10 years 20 years kind of experience where there's this conversation around sexual exploration how do we do this in a safe and playful way um what are our containers and guidelines and boundaries like what is the container and structure that we're setting so that we can work through that um that includes emotional maturity working through things like um jealousy and envy and fear and these different kinds of experiences which i also think really hinder people's experience of having their their full lifestyle like like being able to understand that because we're taught that if I, if I experience jealousy, that there's something wrong, that I need to do something about this. Or if I experience fear that there's something wrong and I need to stop whatever is evoking fear, but these are actually very natural, intelligent uh, forces that we experience. And in Tantra, they really talk about um, just allowing yourself to really be with it. Obviously there's, you know, some emotions are trying to direct you because you're in a dangerous situation, you need to get out. But most of the time it's just a limbic emotional response. And you can really just learn to be with that moment. Well, that's like BDSM and kink. Like you have to outline everything in that. And I, it's, they, um, Esther Perel says it, the third, uh, when you're in a committed relationship, there's always this temptation of like, the third, because a lot of couples think they own their significant other as if yes. like there's this option that they're never going to leave. And so this idea of like, 
inviting the third in, which I believe is the third is the BDSM and kink part of, if you want to call it that, or, or Tantra, or just bringing imagination back into the play. Because mm-hmm. a lot of erotic imagery is backed by those feelings of jealousy, of rage, all these like mister, like all these um, emotions that people claim are bad or icky or gross. Actually, no, those are the fun, the the dangerous, the risque part of it. And people are drawn to risk, adventure, that's how we learn as well. Like we learn when we go into risky situations and how people let kids play risky safely. One of those things. And that should be brought into how adults are let adults play. You know, they can play risky, but let them play risky safety. So we need to bring that imagination into it. And in order to keep long-term relationships moving forward, there's no way that you're going to be able to do it without imagination and a lot of eroticism within myself or, or anybody it has nothing to do with your partner. There's experiences that we go through as our childhood that maybe you're into blondes, but you, your partner is the brunette. The, play with it. Go get a blonde wig. Like, I don't know. Bring it into your relationship, but don't deny it. Like, you can't change that person. You just want them to what? Not be attracted to blondes anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. You have to invite it in. Get to know it. Don't be scared of it. But that doesn't mean that your partner or you don't can't love each other any less. If anything, you'll love each other even more because you're you can have an open, honest conversation about it instead. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, and actually, I love um, I love what you're talking about because it really brings up this misconception around what, what relationship even is, and and also what the nucleus family is. It's like um, w- when we get together and we think that oh, you're going to be my everything and you're going to meet all my needs. This is coming from a very unintegrated inner child place. It's like, you're going to fulfill my needs and give me all the things that I've longed for and didn't get during developmental periods. No, actually, the reason why two people come together is because, first of all, this, there's a theory that there were wound matching. Each person has in the other person wounds that they're desiring to actually heal. And what we're doing is committing, like, I'm going to be an absolute, I I promise to be an absolute mirror to you so that you can feel where you're not whole within yourself and learn to reclaim that. We also have lost parts inside of ourselves towards each other. So I have something that my partner doesn't have that is, that wants to have that within him and seeing me and being together and rendezvousing is inspiring him to get that outside of himself and vice versa. And so when we talk about sexuality and play and development, it's like, we're committing to feeling it all, like including the discomfort. It's like, okay, well, sure. Partner says, you know, get, get a blonde wig because I want to play around that. And, but it's like, oh, I feel this jealousy. Like, oh, he wants me. And it's like, I have to work on that. Ooh, yes. I get to Mm. feel jealousy. I get to feel fear. Ooh, what is that brushing up against? As opposed to like, whoa, I'm feeling jealousy and fear. There's something wrong. I need to now change you. Stop this because Mm -hmm. we're playing the nuclear family. We're playing this role. We need to do this thing. Like we have to stay inside these boxes, but it's like, no, we're here to evolve in this as well. Yeah. To your point, uh, the thing that makes me irk is like people will go out and have sex with random strangers they don't know and have the craziest, wildest, most adventurous sex. And then you get inside of a relationship and all of a sudden where you're saying playing this house 
So you're in a relationship now. You just throw everything out the window. Like you just change your sex because why? And that is that society. I think that is we have been conditioned. Oh, you're with the relationship now. You have to be the relationship version of you. The more refined, quieter, put together version of you. But in reality, relationships are the greatest place platforms to go be your most wild side. It's because you have something safe to come back to. You have like this, like the container that which you were uh, mentioning before. But yeah, that bought like that. I really wish we could rewrite. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I, I also feel that um, it's a good key indicator for someone that you'd want to like, you know, develop your life with is if they're showing themselves sexually as who they are and they want to continue that discussion in, in the relationship. But all of a sudden, if you're going into a relationship, you see them one way and then they start to change themselves it's a good key indication that actually why they were connecting on that sexual way was because they're trying to get unfulfilled needs met through sex or love or relationship. And now they're coming into a relationship and they're wanting to change who you've known, who, who they were or how they presented themselves. It's like, oh, again, they're trying to, they're trying to mold themselves to get unmet needs met. Because we're, we're, because we're also unintegrated, we're unintegrated, we're unwhole. And a lot of that has to do truly with rooted in sexuality because yes. we're really got this message that like who we are fundamentally is not okay. So then we have this inner child piece of us that is, is not developed and has taken on and is trying to find ways to get needs met and through all these different avenues that is also affecting, um, our development. It is. I don't I think that if you don't take sexual wellness as a if you're not looking at your sexual wellness on the same level as your mental, your physical, I just want to remind people that they're connected. Your sexual health is physical health, is mental health, is emotional health, because it helps through all that. Like even with the stats that they came out, um, men need to jack off more. It said something like men who ejaculate more than five times per week, ages 20 to 50 are one third less likely to develop prostate cancer. And I'm taking this one specifically, but I've heard lots of stats when it comes to this, at least for men, but for women, it's an emotional recharge as well. Like for me, I can even say it from my experience, sex is something that you can go to, to replenish things. Mm -hmm. But again, it's kind of one of those things like you should know what you're replenishing because some people can fall into the habit of they're going out and having sex and they might not feel fulfilled because they don't actually know what exactly element needs to get replenished through sex. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Or they are seeing that um, perhaps they're, they're getting something from it, but it's, it's, it's not quite, um, the fundamental of what they're needing. Like they're getting a form of attention or they're getting a form of pleasure or something like that. But ultimately they're not quite getting uh, the level of, I would think it actually comes down to intention. Like, even if you go out and do that, if your intention is that you want to utilize this energy to like flow through your body or to replenish your cells or replenish your organs or to uh, put it towards a dream or goal, it's like, this energy is already pressurized and moving. So direct it towards something as opposed to it just being like sporadic and going everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I think that's as much time as we have for today. But where can my listeners find you? Where can they go to? Yes. So, uh, I post a lot on Instagram. Um, I do have a website as well. You can find me on Instagram, um, at Megan Millington coaching, 
Uh, my website is meganillington.com and um, I predominantly work one-on-one -on -one with clients uh, just around uh, their sexuality, really living the truth of, of their sexuality through their body. And I use the the ancient sciences of uh, Tantra and Taoism uh, with uh, somatic experiencing as well. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Megan, for coming on the show. And for our listeners, I will see you next week.